Hello and welcome to episode 216 of Retro Encounter, RPG fans' off-topic podcast of, or I should say, podcast of many topics, uh, airing every week. My name is Mike Solosi, and I'm joined by two relatively recent RPG fan podcasters, uh, starting with Joe Padilla. Hey there. And also joining us, Jonathan Logan. Hello. Now, for the month of December, our official two-episode game is Ghost Trick, the 2010 DS game that I look upon very, very fondly. Uh, I'm just going to jump right into my personal history with this game. I love Ghost Trick. I talked about it a little bit on our DS-dedicated episode in September, and uh, right after playing this, I immediately lent it to one of my friends just so I could have someone to talk to about this game, and uh, she finished it maybe even faster than I did, and it's... Yeah, this is a very cool, very special DS game to me, and I'm really excited to play it. This is my first time playing it in nine years. I played it just the one time uh, around when it came out nine years ago, and so far I'm almost as excited to talk about it as I was in 2010. Uh, so, Jonathan, I know you've also uh, played Ghost Trick before this podcast run. Um, how, would, how did you find it the first time you played it? Honestly, I can't remember when I first heard of the game. I mean, I... I got into it because I was such a huge fan of Ace Attorney. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect I probably saw it on IGN or something like that. And it just looked like like a perfect game for me. Uh, bought it immediately on the DS, adored it, played it all the way through. And then when it came out on iOS, I think it was a year or two later, I bought it then as well just to just because I you know really wanted to support it. And um, it was – I thought it was even better on an iPad. Um that make that makes sense to me because uh, Ghost Trick, even though it's on the Nintendo dual screen, it really is a one screen game, and uh, and almost everything is done with just a couple action buttons on the lower corners of the screen. It, it, it's but it's as good or better on iOS or on iPad. Oh yeah, I mean it's I mean it, it, it's like it's made for a touch screen mm-hmm. because it sort of is, um, and also the I mean the graphics just look absolutely ridiculously great on a uh, on a bigger screen. Um, so yeah, I played through it again then, and then I hadn't played it for a few years, and then I played it again uh, all the way through for uh, this podcast, and had a fantastic time doing so. All right. Now, uh, Joe, if I'm not mistaken, this is your first time playing Ghost Trick. Uh, first, is, is that true? And second, what are, you, what are your earliest impressions? Yes, uh, it's my first time playing through this. Um, I got it because uh, my friend, uh, I was talking with, about video games with my friend Becky, and she had said, uh, oh, have you ever played Ghost Trick? It's one of my favorite games. And I said, I have never heard of that. <laughs> and uh, then she she said, okay, then you definitely have to borrow it for me. So, uh, so she gave me this game. And uh, I have been playing it. And it's fantastic. I really like this game. And I haven't had any previous experience with... Um, kind of uh, Shu Takumi's, you know, games previous in terms of Ace Attorney or anything. I just know of them. Um, but I really like this sense of humor and everything it has. Right. Well, Shu Takumi is, a, is an interesting cat. I don't think he's developed a whole lot as executive producer other than Ace Attorney. Um, he uh, has been with Capcom for something like 30 years or near or almost 30 years he worked on a few a few of the uh resident evil and dino dino crisis games um but really he was the first game where he was sort of the uh the writer director producer was the first ace attorney for game boy advance in 2001 and since then he has been basically all ace attorney except with this one ghost trick diversion in 2010 um (laughs) but he's a really interesting dude you can feel his sense of humor and his sort of quirky writing uh and his interesting ideas about about gameplay mechanics in all of his games and 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 all of the ace attorney games don't necessarily play the same they all uh, have different sort of you know, mini games and wrinkles as the series has gone on and, and have gotten more complex as they've gone on. But Ghost Trick is not really like those. Uh, um, and then one last thing about Shutakumi before we move on is uh, Shutakumi for many years owned a Pomeranian named Missile. And uh, mm-hmm. his Missile snuck into um, things like character art or poster art for uh, several of the previous Ace Attorney games. Maybe not all of them, but I know that you can find Missile in uh, sort of 
either background art or poster art for several of the um, Ace Attorney games, and he decided to make Missile a much more impactful main character for uh, Ghost Trick. And uh, Missile shows up in Chapter 2, I think. But um, this game is not about Missile. This game is about Sissel, who uh, (laughs) is uh, the game's main character. Uh, We see Sissel as this um, a man with with sort of very pointy hair that almost looks like a ghostly wisp in its shape, (laughs) Uh, but with a snazzy red suit and black sunglasses. and uh, I, I, one last thing before we dive into the game proper, uh, Jonathan, we really need to be careful not to spoil the second half of Ghost Trick. Stay into, stay inside <laughs> the first nine chapters. Uh, the game is eighteen chapters total because there's there are some surprises that I would love to withhold from Joe. Uh, do you follow? Oh, I absolutely follow. Got, gotcha. <laughs> and now I'm going to first jump around a little bit and talk about maybe my two favorite things about Ghost Trick because those two favorite things show up in the first one minute of the game. First of all. The very premise. You're a ghost, you wake up, you see your corpse below you, and you decide to solve your own murder. Great. I'm immediately in. That, 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 that's just the best. <laughs> like, like that, that could be the start of a novel, start of a movie, start of a game, and I'm instantly intrigued. Like, I gotta see at least the, beyond the first scene of this, of this thing. And the, the second thing I love about Ghost Trick is that the two actions, or really the two buttons you do, you, you interact with in the game, are ghost and trick. And you're just ghosting and tricking <laughs> through the whole game. And there's an elegance in that gameplay design that I appreciate greatly. But uh, before the ghosting and tricking, uh, first we have our characters. Um, Sissel wakes up as a ghost. He sees his corpse beneath him, and he sees a man with bluish skin and a shotgun pursuing a young woman in a junkyard. And uh, sort of with on the advice or prompting of another ghost named Ray, uh, Sissel sort of chases after the, the, t- the pursuer and the pursuant, and uh, uses some elementary poltergeist powers to uh, to prevent the to save the life of the young woman. And uh, then uh, Cecil and Ray have a conversation. Ray is inhabiting a, a very very expressive dancy lamp, who's a little bit a little bit like a red version of the Pixar logo, I think. Uh, and Ray sa- basically tells Cecil how some of how ghost powers work and say, "Hey, you should go and try save people." And uh, that's what Sissel's doing, basically just following clues and following uh, people, saving their lives, using some time travel and poltergeist powers to rewind time and, and prevent folks' deaths in hopes of finding the truth of who killed him, why, why he was killed, and it, also who he was. Because uh, Sissel has, is a ghost with just some images and some powers and no memories to help him along this journey. So, okay, that was a bit of a soliloquy for me. I apologize. Um, Jono, what, what were your early impressions of the first couple chapters? Like, uh, what came back to you? What st- struck out as unusual or good or bad about this game? Well, I think that... I think it might be one of the best tutorial levels I've ever played, just because of how beautifully integrated it is into the plot. It doesn't feel like... It doesn't feel artificial. It doesn't feel like the game is telling you, okay, here's how you do this thing. It's you're put, you're thrown immediately into the action. There are stakes. She's going to get shot unless you figure out how to do this. Um, I mean, it's a simple trick, you know, switch over to the, uh, what are they called again? A, a barricade? Yeah, the arm the and, uh, and push it up. But I mean, it's still just, oh, okay, this is how this works. And you feel like you've accomplished something right off the bat. And then if that's, brilliantly taken away from you when she gets shot and you can't do anything about it because it's out of your range and then you get thrown right into the plot and i yeah it's the kind of game where you it doesn't give you a whole lot of time to catch your breath it's really a it's really a sprint all the way through yeah um each scene and there's typically one or maybe one and a half scenes in each chapter is uh uh, someone's death has occurred. That person holds some key or some clue to what Sissel's trying to find out, and you have to rescue that person. So, it, like basically, every moment of the game feels high stakes and uh, with a sense of urgency right from the get-go. And I mean, the, the it, you you were absolutely right, and that's a good t- tutorial because there's no very clear-cut oh press left to go left, press right to go right nature of this gameplay. Like like jumping into this game, you probably don't know what ghosting and tricking are. 
No, you're in the exit. You're in you're in Sissel's shoes exactly. Mm -hmm. So you, he doesn't know what's going on, and neither do you. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how your powers work. You don't know what to do. And then Ray helpfully guides you, but doesn't even spend that long doing it. This isn't a game that that uh, that handholds you for a large portion of it. It's the most handholding that happens. I think is if you fail a mission a couple times, they'll say something like, "Hmm, I think it must. The solution must have to do something with that lamp." Or, "Hmm, I think I need to." Go back, er, go back earlier in the timeline. So, something like that. It never feels forced, and the tutorial never feels intrusive. And that's a, uh, you know, I think I think people want different levels of tutorial out of their games. Sometimes they, people want more explanations. Some people sometimes people want less handholding. There's examples, you know, the the whole uh, spectrum of Dark Souls to Skyward Sword of how much tutorial should a game have. And I think that Ghost Tricks uh, strikes a really good balance. Um, Joe. In the early chapters, uh, did, how did you adapt to the mechanics? Because this is again your first time playing. Like, it, was it? Did, how long did it take to feel natural? And uh, what are your early impressions of how the gameplay happens in Ghost Trick? Well, it's funny that you bring up Dark Souls because I was playing Bloodborne in between this, which is <laughs> which has been which has been a very interesting um, contrast between Ghost Trick and Bloodborne. Um, but I honestly. I took to the mechanics pretty easily. I was like, okay, I under I understand what the the rules are, and it seems pretty well laid out. Um, there's one point that we'll talk about later on where I did not feel like that, but um, but for the most part, I feel like um, I kind of took to it like a fish to water. Just kind of, it made sense even the, despite its absurdity in terms of its actual gameplay that um was pretty sensical and logical to me um but it definitely was a weird uh way to start out with it <laughs> i think it's i i completely agree i also think that it's kind of easy for us to forget about it now because it's you know it's a very it's an older system now but i think it might be one of the best showcases for uh the touchscreen on the DS uh, mm -hmm, available totally. on the system. It's just, it's so intuitive and so smooth and easy to navigate your way around um, that, uh, and it feels like that on iOS as well. Um, but I think it's a really great showcase for the DS hardware. And remarkably, I don't think you need to use the touchscreen at all in the game. Um, every menu button mm -hmm. has a, it does correspond to a face button. I think it's a, you can save with the L or R buttons, which I, I've done, done a couple times. But um, it, it, the touchscreen feels so natural and so intuitive for this. Uh, and li like when you uh, when you press the ghost button is how you travel between objects, and objects are represented by nodes on the screen, and you can just sort of float between them with a, low, a limited range. And then tr and then switching back to the um, to normal time, you know. Uh, uh, reinstates the background art and uh time starts to flow normally and you can press the trick button to manipulate whatever object you're resting in so, so basically you have some time travel powers and some poltergeist powers and uh, also you can rewind the clock uh time back to four minutes before a person's death as long as the corpse is less than one day old uh you or you can only save person within a death of uh, within a day of their death time which is, you know, also explains away the ability to to retry missions, <laughs> and all, and also uh, sort of sets boundaries for what mechanics are are available in the game and uh, limits for Sissel's powers. So, yeah, that's the game. And after you save the young woman in the junkyard, her name's Lynn, and she's a rookie police detective. Uh, if anything, I think the stakes feel higher because instead of saving an adult woman in the second chapter, you're saving a little girl and a dog. And mm -hmm. I'm I'm more inclined to I I don't know I maybe uh, my stupid human brain is sort of suffering more and rooting harder for a little girl and a dog. <laughs> uh, it's at Lynn's apartment. There's a dog named Missile, just like Shutakumi's Missile, and a girl named Camila that lives there, and uh, the same. A new hitman who has a, a a sniper rifle, not a shotgun, um, storms in, shoots the dog, and ties up the girl. So you go. Uh, so Sissel go um, meets up with the dog's ghost, goes four minutes before the dog's death, and then basically manipulates the scene so that Missile leads Camila to a hiding spot under a couch, so that when the gunman arrives, there's no one there. He pauses and leaves, and that's 
one of the tensest moments <laughs> of a first hour of a game I ever remember. Just silence, no background music, a guy with a gun, a girl and a dog hiding under a couch, just sort of walks around, sits down on the very couch, I think has I think maybe makes a phone call and then leaves. Like like that did am I mistaken or was that a really tense moment for level two of a video game? No, I agree. And also the moment where you see the death happen, it's, yeah. it's genuinely tragic. It hits you hard because Missile is so excited. It's like, ooh, new friend, and runs up to him, and then he shoots the dog, which is something you rarely see in a video game. Mm-hmm. And and we also we also can't forget about who exactly these hitmen are because they are hilarious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, I, I, it's it's I, a nearsighted Jigo, and uh, who's it? Steps ahead one, something? One step ahead Tango. Yeah, one step ahead Tango. <laughs> I, I almost I almost fell out of my seat during um, the, the scene in the junkyard with nearsighted Jigo when he's like, there are two things that are looking pretty dim. My eyesight and your future. <laughs> this game has the gift of gabs. So good, and a uh, um, um, missile's very excited personality. Uh, when while when he talks to uh, Sissel, who, who, you know, has a respectful tone, like he, he even calls missile little warrior a couple times, which makes me think, oh, this, this game was definitely written by dog owners. Um, <laughs> like, but like missile's uh, happy-go-lucky dog personality, and Sissel's much more uh, much more relaxed personality with some pretty good dialogue in chapter two. Because um, when someone dies and Sissel attempts to save them, the conscious ghost becomes aware of Sissel and can talk to them. This ha- uh, because he saved, he saves Lynn in chapter one, and I think at least three other chapters. Lynn has a Lynn has a bit of a death <laughs> problem in this game, uh, which is a great running joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by death three or four, like Sissel's asking her, "Are you are you getting tired of this? Have you have you tried to not die this this uh, this evening?" Um, and she's just there like where were you yeah <laughs> a couple deaths in she starts getting a little bit <laughs> chippy about it um yeah there's there's the one where she just says haha i died <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> this game is, is is self-aware and is playing with its mechanics and its dialogue intertwining it's it's, it's just a really good uh overall package but um we've uh talked about the mechanics a little bit but i don't think we've really painted a picture of how a, uh, how a level goes in this game. Um, the, the level in the apartment, basically uh, Camila starts out with, uh, with headphones on so she can't hear anything. And what you have to do is use Poltergeist powers and just bump things around so that Lynn accidentally drops her earphones in, the, in a fish tank, making them useless so she can hear Missile. And then uh, manipulating Missile around so that by... Um, I think by ha- by having Camila drop a donut where a mouse can get it, Missile chases after the mouse, uh, Camila chases after Missile, and um, and then notices that there's a, I think, a decoration fallen from the Christmas tree, so they both go under the couch to get the uh, to get the ball or whatever um, I- item they're chasing after, at which point the hitman enters. So th- that is convoluted as hell and requires <laughs> weird timing and weird, <laughs> and weird scene prediction by the player. Uh, but Basically, every level is a Rube Goldberg machine with some pieces missing, and you use your limited poltergeist and item movement powers to fill in the missing pieces of the puzzle. And uh, and, and again, it, there's a running clock with events happening in certain orders and you having to sometimes uh, perform actions corresponding to specific events. And sometimes the timing can be a little bit, a little bit tight, like, uh, you know... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of one that one that fit. Like, a, you, you need there's a, in some of the pr- uh, prison levels there's droplets of water falling from the ceiling pretty quickly, and you have to travel between droplets of water sometimes because they're the only br- sort of bridge to get across the to get across the room, and so that will involve waiting for a droplet, pressing ghosts at just the right time so the droplet's halfway down and fl- and floating across. It's it, this is not a turn-based turn-based game. There is an hourglass with uh with stakes that feel very real. But it's but it's definitely a puzzle game and definitely a sort of visual novel game. It's uh, uh you can't really describe it in terms of other games necessarily. Uh Either Jono or Joe, uh, was there a specific mechanic in one stage that jumped out at you? Like, I can't believe what I just did. I, I, this is going to be weird to explain to my friends. I think my favorite is probably well. One of my favorites is uh, uh, 
chapter seven, I think, the chicken kitchen, where you have to uh, you have to continuously manipulate things to make your way around the rest. I think I think one of the smartest things they did is the restrictions that they put on Sissel's powers and movement. Like you cannot travel very far away from. Uh, as they're called, cores. No, so I think it's maybe you, a half inch on a regular DS screen. Yeah, so if you want to be able to get around, you need to learn how to manipulate items and latch onto them to uh, get to other places in the, uh, I guess, the level, um, which is, uh, it, I mean, that's the challenge, really. If you could go anywhere, it would be much easier. Um, but there's it's, there's few things more frustrating than like seeing something happening just out of your reach. And you're like, oh, if I could only get over there, I could do this and save the day. And you need to figure out how to get over there. And sometimes it's waiting for someone to raise their arm a certain distance or waiting for a water droplet to fall like I described a second ago. It's not always easy to figure out. The uh, um, In Chapter 10, uh, which is only one or two missions ago for me, I think I'm in Chapter 11 or 12 right now, I uh, it was one chapter I struggled a little bit with because I had to – I have – you only have about a half second – for when uh, a certain character raises a pitcher of water high up in the air and then quickly puts it down. And to get to the higher part of the, the level, you have to be there for the exact half second that the pitcher of water is high and not, and not on the table or on the desk. There's a lot of situations like that that require precise timing. But I, I don't think the game's ever playing unfair. Uh, they give you occasional clues um, in dialogue or in, or in game over screens. And... Uh, you know, it, it does follow a specifically weird video game logic, and usually there's only one solution or two solutions. There's there, Some puzzles have not much leeway at all. But I, I never felt really betrayed by the puzzle mechanics. Uh, Joe, was there a specific puzzle mechanic or a specific action you performed as Sissel that you found particularly interesting or amusing? Uh, hmm. I, I found the... Um... The, the scene in the chicken kitchen when you had to switch around the um, when you had to switch around the chickens because one of them had a, a wire on it or mm-hmm. like a ladybug and um, I was like oh she keeps noticing it and you had to um, you had to turn off the fans so that the room would get smoky so that the undercover agent would be like, ah, shoot, I have to turn on the fans. It's way too smoky in here. And then when she has her back turned, you have to turn around the the chickens because there's a little pedal on the bottom of the floor that rotates the table. Yeah, because the, the chef uses the pedal to, rotate, to you know, prepare a new chicken, then rotate mm-hmm. it to the waitress, and then start work on the new chicken. And that's another great example of his limited range because the, mm-hmm. the pedal is just out of your reach. Yeah, yeah, the challenge in that level, once you figure out the the solution, is how to get from the switch that closes the vents over to the opposite side of the room where the oven is and then to the bottom of the room where the pedal is, all mm-hmm. within the time window of when the waitress has her back turned. And 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 that that and the whole the whole level is freaking convoluted because um the death is Lynn again unsurprising uh because a giant chicken uh, <laughs> uh would you call that hanging decoration I would call it the most dignified death in gaming okay a a <laughs> a, a, a giant decorative ch- um uh, roast chicken uh falls on her when a van crashes into the side of the restaurant <laughs> and what you have to do is. Um, first find your way to, uh, a different part of the restaurant, sort of see where a couple different groups are seated, uh, overhear some conversations, including, uh, a mysterious couple with blue skin, similar to the, uh, similar to the two hitmen at the beginning of the game, uh, overhear some things. And then, uh, when you realize that you can't really prevent Lynn's death in a normal way, you decide to, um, latch onto the corpse of the driver of the van that crashed into the building. And it turns out that's an, a detective who was trying to spy on uh, on uh, on the restaurant because of some kind of mysterious deal was supposed to go down involving the the blue couple, and so you go to the where the uh, you go to where the detective dies and realizes that something in his earpiece caused him to faint in the in his van and then lose control and crash into the restaurant. And then that's when you figure out by going from his phone call to the undercover agent in the restaurant that he died because 
the bug that was put on a chicken was discovered by the couple and they smashed it, creating a, a, the sharp sound in his earbud that made him lose control of the car. Th- th- again, this is bonkers to explain to someone <laughs> that has not experienced it for, them- for themselves. And you end up going between three different scenes uh, or four different scenes, the, um, the restaurant to the park where the van is, to the van, to the kitchen in the restaurant. And then once you switch the, the chickens and an unbugged chicken reaches the couple, the, the scene plays out normally and the van never crashes into the restaurant. That's what we're wor- That's the kind of logic we're working with here. <laughs> and it all makes sense within the context of the game. Yeah. And also, Sissel, uh, I, I forgot to mention this earlier. Sissel has the unusual ability to travel rapidly along phone lines. So if uh, you're inside a phone and someone has a conversation with another phone, you can zoom over fast travel style to the uh, to that phone number, and that is a crucial gameplay element in this game. Uh, it's it's the means of traveling from scene to scene, and sometimes and also lets you spy on phone conversations, which is important in in uh, at different times. Whew, there's a lot going on in Ghost Trick. And the crucial and the crucial parts of that level with the pedal is that the chef squirts some sort of special sauce out of his head onto the chicken and so you have to travel through his hat when he does that because the hat creates the bridge to the pedal like what yeah you have to wait for him to lift his his hat off so it's uh so it's sort of um below his torso instead of on his head and, and, and that creates the, the bridge that you need going from, uh, what is it, like vent to oven to toke to pedal? Yeah, something along those lines. <sighs> that, it, is, it, is kind of, it is kind of wild. It is a more complicated kitchen scene than any part of Pixar's Ratatouille. <laughs> I think it might be my favorite. I think it might be my favorite level in the game just because there are so many parts and so much travel and you're in so many things. And again, the way Lynn... I was just thinking about it. The way Lynn dies is amazing because, I mean, this is, and it's also beautifully animated. She selflessly and bravely pushes the uh, uh, undercover uh, detective out of the way of the incoming van. She does this amazing backflip kind of thing out of the way of the van herself. And she's just having like a moment of triumph where she's standing there and then she gets crushed by a giant chicken. It's, it's, a, perf- it, it's a perfect example of the game's sense of humor. And also, uh, oh, uh, we're going to go into the animations in this game later because I, I might, we might have to do a whole third episode just about the character animations in this oh, game. So freaking good. But the, uh, mm-hmm. there's no voice acting, but there are some exclamations, and and sound effects. And one of my favorites is uh, a couple characters use this, but including the chef while he's cooking, he's has a nice operatic that is one of the few human sound effects in this game. Again, it's all done for sort of cartoonish exaggeration and expression and comedy, and I I, I love it. I love all of it. Totally. <laughs> so should we get should we get into the characters and animations next? Yeah, sure. I they're real good. <laughs> love the smooth animations in this game. The backgrounds are very static, and um, you can even see sort of the um interactable objects in the in the game like like certain objects that Sissel can clearly jump into or most of the character uh, models sort of pop off the screen a little bit but the animations are so smooth they look amazing for a DS game and um, let's see uh, Detective Cabanella one of uh, Lynn's superiors does like Michael Jackson poses and uh, and and like a, a, a descending stairs dance that is just mesmerizing um there's a uh, there's a the junkyard superintendent who is some kind of a amateur mechanic has a pigeon on his head that is always doing pigeon leap things when he, whenever the professor's walking around. Uh, missile is a delightfully expressive little pomeranian dog. Uh, the chef with his singing and his toque and all of that. But maybe uh, th- the best character animations in this whole game and perhaps for the entire DS are the comedy duo prison guards. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, uh, now, I don't know how much you know about Japanese comedy, but one form of Japanese comedy that's sort of a classic is to do a, uh, an Abbott and Costello or Laurel and Hardy comedy duo where there's one mm-hmm. sort of more uh, stoic performer and one more animated uh, weirdo performer, sort of a, you know, a, a joke man and a straight man. And these two prison guards are, again, definitely doing Japanese comedy routines, but the... Uh, 
the, the more expressive of the two does these hilarious um like excited reactions these chair spins on his desk and uh, when he's feeling panicked he he does a truly mesmerizing dance in the middle of his office that is just the best i i i, I love it i i want a whole game about those two prison guards it's so good and the and when he spins around in his chair because he's upset mm-hmm. that the other officer threw away his notes and there's just this um the sound that's a bit like the Phoenix Wright objection sound, and he just does this this dejected spin. He's like, "Why did you do that?" And that's only part of it. Um, he puts a note on the board, and you, being the asshole ghost that you are, goes to the note and blows it off the board with your little pull, mm-hmm. with a, by pressing the trick button, and it lands on the other cop's desk. And so the cop's like, hey, what's this note about? And then the uh, jokey cop goes to a long, detailed story of what was on that note and what and the complicated case it was about and who that prisoner is. And then the other cop just sort of ignores him, throws away the note, and then the then the excited cop does this really exaggerated spin on his desk chair. And it's it's just awesome. And <laughs> the, the different cases that he talks about on his notes are kind of real goofy uh one of them was a a musician who in the middle of a concert stops singing and starts spouting state secrets to the audience which that's me which got a lot yeah which got a lot of people confused and then this other one was someone who broke into the police commissioner's office uh seemed confused while holding the commissioner at gunpoint and then ordered four plates of curry over the phone and that is me um so those are two minor characters that you meet in the prison later as well uh I, their names, I think, are Rockstar Jailbird and Curry Jailbird, Jailbird, which I'm, I also find very amusing. Uh, but uh, Jono, <laughs> there's so many expressive characters and goofy uh, character animations. Is there a favorite character or specific um, visual element that you loved that we need to talk about before we uh, before we close shop? Well, it's like you said, Cavanella is amazing. But mm-hmm. it, when we were talking about it, it just occurred to me. Um, that in a in a former life I was an actor, and because of the because of the two D backgrounds, it just occurred to me that this thing is set up very much like a stage play. Like there are all of these props that you have uh, around the screen, the stage, so to speak, that you can manipulate. There's the use of spotlights continuously on characters or to highlight a specific piece of evidence. Um, it just it, it suddenly occurred to me. It's a it's it's obviously not a stage play. It's a game, but the way that it's designed visually is it uses a lot of uh a lot of stagecraft yeah and uh there's a lot yeah. there's a lot of japanese theater influence in in uh the video games we play i'm i am 99 sure that the reason um uh final fantasy games have you know one uh one the hero's characters on the right and the enemies on the left and uh and exaggerations for uh for attacks and victory poses are because of kabuki theater that that's just that's so, sort of how things are are presented and um because you're experiencing it this on a 2d plane and the way it, like you said the way things are highlighted and the way characters enter and exit it, it does feel like a stage play at times i i yeah they're I basically props. Agree. everything is a prop mm-hmm. that you manipulate i mean as an actor there's nothing more there's nothing more that you like to do than play with props and and in japanese theater um there's a uh Basically, stagehands called kurokos, dressed all in black with uh, with black cloths over over their face, hide in the background to manipulate uh, to manipulate objects in um, a couple different forms of Japanese theater. So, in a way, you're this is a stage play, and you're an invisible kuroko. I think we That's just put really it together. Cool. <laughs> That's fascinating. And and I think so much of this, um, as we talked about with the animations, I mean, so much of this game is sold through its physicality through like you you sense the emotion in the characters through how they're animated and animated and how they're moving whether that's um whether that's the exaggerations of officer bailey um whether that's kind of the, the sometimes uh devil may care attitude of lynn um the blue or... cop or the green cop oh yeah bl- yeah yeah blue cop and green cop and then there's the uh oh shoot there's the um the detective who crashes the van? I think I think they I think Sissel gives him a silly nickname too before we learn his real name. Yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, the one with the hat. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way I can put. It. Um yeah, so much of it is sold through that and it does kind of seem I think that kind of contributes to it 
more being a, a stage play because um, you can't always see the if you're if you're seeing a play um, you might be far back in the audience and you might not be able to see the minutes uh, you know facial expressions and such but when you see the actual movements you can uh, understand the emotion that they're trying to convey so I think that's something really fascinating with it because these characters are not highly expressive because they're a DS game in terms of facial expressions and things like that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah the, the character model animations are are pretty detailed for a 2010 DS game, but there isn't really facial animation or even speech animation. It's um but it it works with the technology it has and the presentation it's chosen very well, I think. And mm -hmm. There's one thing that we haven't really talked about much. Uh, this game does have an underlying story. Um, so, yes, yeah, Sissel uh, wants to discover the circumstances of his death, and uh, starts out sort of following Lin for clues. And eventually, you meet uh, these uh, some unusual characters all in blue. It's clear that they're either a foreign government or like an evil organization of some kind, like some you know some Ernst Blofeld James Bond nonsense. That uh, and they have an ulterior motive that is def that is definitely not clear yet, but uh, it just makes me racist against blue people. Just uh, just watching the um, their unadulterated evil in this game, uh, giving me some complicated feelings about the blue man group. I think, but the uh, how, how do you feel about James Cameron's Avatar? You know what? I have not hated it so much until when I started playing this game a few weeks ago. <laughs> I had forgotten everything about that movie, and but now I still hate it. <laughs> I think everyone's forgotten everything yeah, about that. You know, movie. it's a little weird. For a mega blockbuster that set records in 2008 or whenever that was, uh, I mean, you don't really see Avatar superfans cosplaying at conventions or or people excitedly talking about Avatar 2 and 3, which evidently are coming. I mean, I, I enjoy many Eventually. James Cameron movies, but I, I, this, I, I'm sort of surprised that's the one that made $2 billion or however much it did. I think it's amazing that there's an entire themed land based around Avatar at Animal Kingdom in Florida, and there's probably an entire generation of kids who are visiting that, and they're, they don't even have a clue there's a movie. They just think it's a themed land. Huh. Huh. All right. Well, anyway, this is not the blue people of Avatar. Um, <laughs> this is the blue people of a mysterious organization or possible foreign government that, I, uh, mm. that I'm not sure we know the name of yet, and... Uh, and the assassins, the the couple in the restaurant, and also two people that seem to be leadership within this group. Uh, you you hear you meet them through a phone line uh, pretty early in the game, but they're, they're definitely involved somehow. And uh, you follow Lynn, realizing that she that there was a meeting to happen in that restaurant, which is why you go to the restaurant in the first place. Uh, detect there's some Lynn is trying to gather clues. Uh, um, very urgently because uh, a dear friend of hers, the, the, uh, a detective that sort of um, that saved Lynn's life uh, a decade earlier and was uh, Lynn's inspiration to become a detective, he is uh, going to be executed later that night, and she's trying to uh, exonerate him before that uh, before that that can happen, which leads you to try and and locate the prisoner that she she gives you the, his prison number, and uh, that's when you meet the prison guards in the office outside the prison. And the uh, and the rock star and the curry lover that are uh, that are also occupants in the prison. But when when you meet that prisoner, whose name is Detective Jowd or maybe Detective Jode, uh, he's painting a picture. And when you see the front of the picture, the picture is of Sissel, the the distinctive pointy blonde hair and sunglasses. And it's like, why is this detective? Why does this detective know who Sissel is? And then uh, I think either just before or just, I think just after that. You've learned that uh, the two blue people in the restaurant were intending to meet Sissel for something. So, and and Sissel doesn't remember any of this. He has amnesia. He doesn't know. He did not know who Detective Jowd was before uh, seeing his his face on that painting. He didn't know what he was going to meet those two people for. And 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 w when you sort of return to the prison to uh, relay some information from Lynn back to Detective Jowd. Uh, the uh, prison people who have not had to do an execution in a decade or something, uh, their their electric chair shorts out and explodes, having which results in you first having to save Jowd's life because the explosion killed him. And, uh, and I which, mean, it which, still uh, technically worked. It, which, yeah, which I guess it worked. He did die as a result of the chair. So the, 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 I guess the ends justify the means for the uh, for the ex for the executioners in this case. Um, but that also allows uh, Jowd to communicate with you now that he's a ghost and has met Sissel. 
And uh, but then after you undo that explosion, uh, there's a prison blackout. And in one of the most awkward missions in the whole game, you have to guide Jowd through a prison escape uh, in a prison escape by uh, while there are guards with flashlights looking for him. So it's a lot of Jowd hiding under a bed, you messing around with some stuff, and when the guards turned away, you you give Jowd a signal to to go to move to the next hiding spot. <laughs> it's <laughs> Yeah, that one that one took me a couple tries to nail. I, I didn't get it right on the first go. Um, but it's also really not like any other mission in the game. Would you agree? I would say it's not like any other mission in the game, and thank God. Uh, yeah, I'm not a giant fan of that mission. Agreed. I I came like I I've come around to it now that I like I finished it, but during the time I was like I I'm not understanding what this is, and then I. And then I understood that Jowd has some uh, has some pretty beastly strength, and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that I should not have expected. I shouldn't have um, guessed that he would not be able to pull himself up um, to the extent that he does. Oh yeah, he just has uh, he has the impossible grip strength and upper body strength of uh, you know the main character of any video game where you climb, including recent Tomb Raider games where Lara Croft is about as as skinny as a sapling, and but can but can do, you know, like, kick her legs above her above her head while hanging off the side of a cliff. She's a beast. Yeah, yeah, you have video game strength. Yeah, I, I thought I was trying to, like, guide this character from Dream Daddy around uh, <laughs> around the stage, but it turns out I was just playing Prince of Persia, so mm-hmm. that was cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it, everything down to rewinding time to the outrageous agility that, from your main characters. This is, this is exactly. a, a secret Prince of Persia game. Can I oh, ju- totally. Can I jump back the- to something for a second? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just I just remember what my favorite animation in the game is. Uh, in the prison escape, there's a trap door, and uh, you had there's a there's one of the guards, and he's in the trap door, and he has a he has a gun, and he's he's like hiding there, uh, spotting anyone who comes by. So in order to get Jowd by him, you have to open the trap door so he falls down. Um, and in this particular level, by the way, it's completely black. So you can't see anything. You can only see like a little area around you and you can see the red from the guard's night vision goggles. Um, So once this guard falls down, he tries to get back up to his position. So you just see this like little red dot going up the stairs and then going up the stairs and then taking three steps and then this little red dot falling down very quickly onto the ground and it never ceases to crack me up. Because there's no animation, there's no real character. It's just a little red dot, and it's just the it's just the visual in my head of just this little story being told over and over again. <laughs> Those poor cops have about as much luck as a sideshow Bob trying to walk across a deck full of rakes. <laughs> <laughs> they just keep falling for the same trap. <laughs> mm. Just about. <laughs> I actually do like the fact that they set up. I, in this game, like all of the game over uh, setups, actually make sense. Like for this for this section, uh, Jowd says specifically, "They'll shoot me on sight if they see me." So if they see Jowd, then they'll shoot him on sight. Then you have to go back again to his death. I mean, they skip that the animation and everything, but it's an in-game reason why you can repeat the escape over and over again until he gets out. It's because every single time they spot him, they'll just shoot him. And uh, and your rewinding time ability, uh, uh, you know, provides some justification for going back to the beginning of a stage after failure. Uh, you, you know, this is in the, uh, the same place in the game, the the prison, but a few missions earlier is uh, one of my favorite animations. You have the uh, the musician prisoner and the curry loving prisoner. Uh, they have uh, an elaborate scheme that you discover if, as, if you just sort of wait and just sort of watch them uh, in action. What you're trying to do is reach Detective Jowd's cell. And he's in the lower left. And you have to sort of go from upper left to upper right to lower right to lower left. But the way you do so is uh, you have the curry-loving prisoner who's trying to dig out of the prison. And whenever a prison guard comes by, the, uh, the, the rock star prisoner flushes a, um, <laughs> a, a piece of toilet paper down the toilet, which uh, when it gets down th- through the sewer pipe, uh, piping to the curry-loving prisoner... It rings a bell, and he scoots out of where he's digging, and and just uh, and and lies down and pretends to sleep until the guards pass. And what you, to get to Detective Jowd's cell, you have to basically set up the toilet paper plot just right, 
and then ride that piece of toilet paper down to the curry-loving prisoner, jump inside the spoon that the curry-loving prisoner is using to dig, and then and then stay in the spoon as he throw as he throws the spoon into his uh into the glass near his um near his the sink in his room. <laughs> so you have to ride from toilet paper through pipeline into a spoon and then a a perfectly thrown spoon into a into a glass uh at the other side of the cell which lets which allows you which gets you close enough to Jowd to reach him. Again, completely incomprehensible unless you see it in action. But Trust me, this is a real game, and that is a real puzzle you have to figure out. There's just there's just nothing like it on. There's nothing like it on the DS. There's nothing like it. Period. Yeah, and I think this goes back to uh, the earlier point that um, it that this kind of shows off what exactly the DS can do. Um, it's like a it's like a relaxed version of the world ends with you, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of really showing off what exactly. Um, the capabilities of this system are, is, or kind of like Nintendogs, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if this is what I would call a graphical powerhouse presentation, but the animations no. are so good, and uh, the and the visuals are just so appealing. It's it's just a very good looking DS game. Yeah, um, and and not in terms of like the the actual performance of it, but just in terms of the little the little bits and bits and bobs that. Um, that uh the ds has um that allowed these games to um play so well on it i mean now that i think about it this game has spawned a couple of i mean i haven't played it yet have either what's the name of the game is it the sexy brutal or something like that it's a very similar concept that got released last year um indie darling game of the year kind of game where you you have to go back in time and and uh solve murders uh, in a somewhat similar fashion to Ghost Trick, it's a completely different graphic presentation, but it's... I, I believe it is Sexy Brutal is what it's called. Sexy Brutal, yeah. It's been on my to playlist for quite some time. I haven't heard of it. No. I remember when it came out, there was some buzz around it, but I have not played it. I just like the Groundhog Day mechanic in games and <laughs> movies and anything really. It's just it's a fun mechanic to see different see the same event from different perspectives. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, maybe not exactly Rashomon, but it's a definitely an intriguing mechanic. Um, solving sort of like solving a puzzle, but the puzzle is a real life action and not you know shapes on a board or something or different or different. Uh, finding which keys go in the right lock. This game is a ghost using uh poltergeist powers to to influence the environment in small ways. To change actions of uh, background characters is just really unique and cool. Um, Everything about Ghost Trick is unique and cool. And uh, again, going back to that premise and having a ghost button and a trick button be 95% of the gameplay of the game, just I was invested from the very beginning and uh, both the intrigue of who Sissel is and what uh, and what this organization's doing and and what uh why the detective went in jail there's a lot of background intrigue in the storyline and uh a lot of sort of big humor and big drama in the dialogue there it's it has a uniquely dark and funny tone but a lot of but a, a storyline that has you hooked from pretty early on and as such uh Joe um you have the uh benefit of be of this being new to you um uh, jano and i are both i'm certain although i don't i don't want to put words in jano's mouth uh we're definitely trying to avoid specific discussion topics or or, or maybe even specific key words to keep you in the dark a little bit so i it, so i want to know whether it's um a character thing or an overall story thing do you have a prediction of i don't know either a character factoid or an end game scenario that you uh, that you'd like to you know put forward in front of the class. Figure like like what what do, <laughs> what's one or two things that you think might happen in the end game of this, and we'll see how correct you are after you finish the game and we record uh, the second episode. Okay, so hmm. so one of them is, and I feel pretty good about this one that Sissel is not Sissel. Interesting, or because. Like I, there are just some things that don't line up. He is no, like, um, 
as like characters you know who are unconscious or something like that they don't have and when they first come to they don't have any recollection of who they are but he has no idea like it's it's like he's untethered to the person to the you know this dead person in yellow that we see at the beginning of the game and in different spots in the game like i think there's um i can't remember who it I can't remember who it is, but there's one character who, when they die, they accidentally project themselves as the wrong um, form. I think it's Lynn. Yeah, um, I think I think it's uh, I think I think it is Lynn. Yeah, she, she, it's, it, yeah, it's Lynn who thinks she's Cabanella. Doesn't she take on the look of the Justice Minister or something? Or I think it's Cabanella, and then she goes, "Oh, thank God, it wasn't." Yeah, that. that's right. It's it's Cabanella, <laughs> not the Justice Minister. Yeah, yeah. So she does that. So that demonstrates that someone could have a false. Um, perception of themselves um and so so sissel or who the person who thinks they're sissel um could not be that person they might have like a different projection and they might be someone unrelated they might be they might be ray i don't know yeah that's Um, another mystery of the game uh Ray does not explain who they are at all, um, and is and when you go back to the junkyard um, for chapters other than chapter one, Ray is still there, just you know, hiding in a lamp, just sort of bouncing back and forth, having a good time, and answering uh, and answering your questions without really giving you any new information. Um, uh, so, so we don't know who or what Ray is. We uh, Sissel might not be the cover character that we think they are. There, there's also a lot of weird things about Sissel, like, uh, um. Oh, I don't know if I will. He can't he can't read? Yeah, that's right. When, when the, he's trying to read the prisoner schedules in the prison cells, uh, it, Sissel can't read. So th- th- that's strange. An what? adult human should be able to read. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, you know, literacy is not one hundred percent across the world. But I'm guessing that if Sissel had some information for Lynn, or this character of Sissel had some information for Lynn. Uh, I'm guessing he had he was literate, um, and and now that I'm thinking about it, my my prediction is that some it's something with Ray being the the quote unquote Sissel who died because they also have a very similar color palette with the red lamp. Oh, that's the right. Yeah, red yellow with the yellow light. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the person who we believe the person we believe is Sissel, the again the cover character has a red suit and distinctive yellow hair. Yeah, and um, I think uh, there's something weird going on with Inspector Cabanella um, because he I feel like he probably had a hand in whatever uh, befell Detective Jowd um, because like he didn't go to visit him in he didn't go to visit him apparently although they were apparently close and he seems like a total careerist Mm -hmm. um and so he seems like the kind of person who would do just about anything to keep himself on track to promotion and such like that and and also jowd seems to have accepted his fate uh and is even and even asked to be executed while uh while lynn is convinced of jowd's innocence it's there's a lot of strange things surrounding why Jout is in prison and why Cabanella behaves the way he does. It's it's uh th- there's a lot that's unexplained or underexplained, and in fact, yeah. where we are in the game right now, chapter ten is uh, Sissel going to the Justice Minister's office, only to find Lynn there alive, unusually, and the Justice Minister dead, <laughs> um, because uh, the ju- uh, Lynn had gone there to try and convince the Justice Minister to um, delay Jout's execution. And chapter ten is um, saving the justice minister, which is not not really a spoiler that for you, Joe. I think you, I think you had figured that much out. Uh, or, I just thought they're going to leave. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, it's not it's not like there are any specific powers that could. Oh, I don't know. Rewind time four minutes to stop a person's death. And the justice minister is a amusing character with some uh, pretty goofy um, character model animations of his own. Um. Well, let's just say that he makes some exaggerated gestures uh, in his death scene, which I'm sure you'll enjoy very soon, Joe. Because uh, this game is not very long. Each chapter, which yes. is you know uh, uh, one or one or one and a half puzzles and a lot of dialogue, each chapter is maybe forty minutes. 
uh, and certainly under an hour. And at 18 chapters, this game clocks in in the 12 to 14 hour range, which uh, I, it never feels like it's wasting my time. It like the the stakes are consistently high in each chapter. There is uh, and there's a lot of bread, story bread com- crumbs chapter to chapter. Uh, it, it's it's fairly fast moving for being a you know short to medium length visual novel puzzle adventure. <laughs> I am I am kind of glad for that because you know I like my long games, mm-hmm. but you know the Vagrant Story, which which I was on a couple of weeks ago, was you know thirty five to forty hours, and then before that was was Wild Arms Three, which was sixty five hours. Oh yeah, uh, I, I I've been there. Um, <laughs> I I mean I've done I've so, done episodes on Persona Four and Xenoblade Chronicles, and each of those is about a hundred oh. hours. Oh gosh! Yeah. Uh, but but this is a uh, considerably shorter game than the last couple that we've done. Um, Grandia, which was in the intervening month between Wild Arms Three and Vagrant Story, is a is a solid forty of its own, I think. And um, and Joe, I I do not want to say anything as to how true your claims are, except uh, I do want to <laughs> say you make some good observations. And please keep playing. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of course, I'm gonna keep playing. Joe, these are all very fascinating theories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're <laughs> those are good observations, Joe. That's all I'm gonna say. So, uh, uh, J- thanks, Jono. Um, without uh, without revealing too much, what's one thing in the second half of the game that you're eager to discuss? Try to be a little vague for the audience and Joe's benefit. Oh, geez, be vague. Um... Because I'll, I'll I'll go first. Um, I am really looking forward uh, to the epilogue because I think that the uh, the scenes in the epilogue are very touching, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to talking about that in this in when we do an episode two in a week. I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about the uh, talk about the the. Hmm. This is. It's, I, it's I know. No, this, I'm. I. I didn't prepare you for this, <laughs> John. No. No. no I'm it's sorry. just. It's tricky to say it. I know exactly what I want to say. I just mm-hmm. can't. Um, for fascinating <laughs> reasons. Um, uh, you can use phrases like a certain character. Or... I'm excited. I'm excited for. I'm excited for Joe to get some answers about their questions. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so, Joe, there will be some answers to your questions, and there is an entertaining epilogue to look forward to in the second half of Ghost Trick, colon, Phantom Detective. I, don't, I think I accidentally haven't said the word Phantom yet in this episode. Whoops. But... Or, or, or what were you calling it? Um, was it Toast Frick? Oh, yeah, Toast Frick. Um, <laughs> Dantum Detective or whatever? <laughs> yeah, in, in, the, in the pre-show, uh, listeners, we were... Um, you know, doing various permutations of the words ghost, trick, phantom, and detective, and ended up with a uh, a hypothetical game called Toast Frick, where you solve, uh, I think, cooking puzzles by fricking items and the and, <laughs> and asking. And uh, the, the less you know about what that uh, verb is, the better. So, okay, if we're talking about fricking, and if we're done talking about Japanese theater, maybe it's uh, time to end the episode. Um, next week, we are doing our second Ghost Trick episode. It has obviously not been recorded yet, but uh, we're going to give Joe and I an extra week to finish the game and then have another discussion. Hopefully, it'll be as, as entertaining and, as in, and intriguing as this one. Um, and the year, the, I'm sorry, the week after that, we're almost a year after, but not quite, um, we're doing our year in review episode that we've done every year for, I don't know, at least three years. I'm, I'd have to check a list to see how far our year and years in review go but and after that the it'll be time to change the calendar and our first 2020 episode will be a special episode about the playstation one uh Earlier this month, in the, the first week of December, was the 25th anniversary of the PlayStation. And that gave us the idea to uh, do an episode celebrating the PS1. But, but when that happened, uh, December was already filled out, basically. So uh, that PlayStation-specific episode will be in early January. And the rest of January, we're going to have two episodes on Suikoden 5, which won a poll on episode 200 earlier this year. So uh, year in review, more, more Ghost Trick, then PS1 episode, then Suikoden 5. 
So listeners, thank you so much for uh, joining us this week. Um, you can f- uh, contact the podcast via email using retro at rpgfan.com. That's the best way to reach the podcast directly with questions or comments. You can also comment on the message boards, visit the Facebook page, Instagram page, Twitter page, uh, Discord server, or, or Twitch channel for to see all of the um, content that RPG Fan has to offer. There's links to all of those things on the RPGFan.com main page. Uh, there are also many other fine podcasts a uh, part of RPG Fan. There's Random Encounter, which posts about every two weeks and is about randomness and current events. And Rhythm Encounter, which posts every blank, <laughs> is about video game music. Uh, Red- Rhythm Encounter hasn't had a new episode in a little while, but uh, it may come out of a hiatus soon. And I know that there's been discussion behind the scenes about that. But uh, no word yet. And also there is Phoenix Edge, which is a weekly podcast mostly focused on current events that is hosted live on YouTube every week and then posts to uh, the usual podcast feeds, usually the day after they, they uh, record it live. And uh, speaking of podcasts and recording, you can review us or either of those other three podcasts on iTunes or Google Play or however you are listening to us. Please leave reviews, five stars, five stars, and whatever constructive feedback you are willing to write. So, uh, Jono and Joe, let's tell the listeners how they can reach us directly should they choose to. Uh, starting with you, Jono. Sure. Uh, you can uh, find me on Twitter at uh, Jono Logan. So, J O N O L O G A N. And, uh, Jono, you're also one of our fine review staff. Uh, what was the most recent review that you had on the site? I got Romancing Saga 3 coming out in a couple of days, I think. Oh, cool. So th- that'll probably be already out the time that we post this episode. Yeah, we're posting I, this a, we're, yeah, we're posting this a couple we're, – we're uh, posting this a couple days after we record. Yeah, so I excellent. think it should be out by then. Excellent. Romancing Saga 3. And, uh, Joe, how can listeners reach you? Uh, so you can – because I'm one of the social media people, um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter for RPG Fan. But you can also find me on Twitter and Discord – and Instagram as at Queers for Fears, which I've appeared on quite a few of these episodes, and I yeah you you've had a, you had a very re- you've had a very busy autumn, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm but each time when I say my when I say my handle, I'm like that was a decision I made a few years ago. <laughs> Oh and uh, and um, Joe, as you mentioned a moment ago, you are on the social media t- staff. So if uh, listener, you are interacting with RPG fan on Facebook or Twitter, uh, Joe might be the person you're speaking to directly. And and usually you'll sign like with a dash jo, right? Correct. Yep. Um, and I also would like to uh, give a bit of a plug for uh, for Jono's uh, review of the Outer Worlds. Mm, yes. Um, oh. Which I thought was a lovely review. Really good. So. Um, that's up on our website and such, and you should definitely check Thank it out. Yeah, I think Outer Worlds came out in uh, late October-ish, or maybe early November, mm-hmm. and uh, it has made quite a splash. It, lo- it, lo- it looks fantastic. One of my close friends is playing it and giving me text updates of all the silly crap he's up to. It's it's <laughs> so good. I just if if you love if you love uh, I mean if you love Fallout, you're just going to adore this game. If you love what Fallout was, you're going to adore this game. <laughs> and this is the team that uh, created Fallout New Vegas and Pillars of Eternity and uh, many other games with fantastic writing. So I'm glad that uh, Outer Worlds at least live up, lived up to uh, most, if not all, of its hype. That, that's really I'm, I'm happy when a game I'm interested in ends up really good. Yeah, I had a really good time with it. Speaking of games that came out in 2019, uh, we have our Games of the Year stuff happening pretty soon. That's going to be in the in the like the last week of December or so. We're going to roll out our Best of 2019 awards. And just mm-hmm. before that, I think uh, probably this week, probably it might already be out or partially out now, we're revealing our top 25 RPGs of the decade, um, games that uh, came out uh, between 2010 and 2019 inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I keep forgetting it. It's, the end of the, it's not just the end of the year. It's the end of the decade. Mm, yeah, well, the end of the... Uh, end of the the thirds digit in the year is going to change very soon. The de- the decade is technically 2011 to 2020, but okay. no one ca- no one cares about the old zero BC rules, so we're calling the decade 2010 oh, to 2019. Uh, the reason that a decade is from goes from one to ten is because there's no uh, there's no year zero BC, and the first decade uh, the the first decade of AD was one to ten, and the previous decade was one BC to ten BC. So uh, that's why decades technically the decade is technically 2011 to 2020. But nobody cares because the third digit of the of the calendar year is more clear to people than 
what the decades were 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that's dumb. We just want to see the numbers go. That's what we want to see. Yeah, that's why I played this, I've played like six Disgaea games. I love numbers changing and increasing. <laughs> uh, but listeners, I guess I haven't told you how to find me yet. You can find me on Twitter at The Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times. I am also on this podcast most of the time and on uh, Discord at Monsoon as Monsoon Mike. And uh, yeah, please look forward to the next Ghost Trick episode. Thank you. Good night and good luck. Yeah.